If I had to maybe think about a word that describes the condition of our world today, uh, that describes maybe how society and culture feels today, I think one of the words that I would use is the word joyless. We are living in joyless times. Like, it's all around us. Goodness, you can't even make a joke. You can't tell a joke. You can't say something funny because people are so easily offended, right? Nothing's funny anymore. Can't laugh at anything, right? We can't express happiness at times because someone is going to get turned off by that. And if someone or a group is uh, offended, guess what? You're canceled. You're done for. You're written off, right? People, if you haven't noticed, are miserable. It's like gloom, darkness, and depression. And you can see it on the myriad of faces of people around you. Have you gone to the shopping malls and centers recently? I mean, I, I was I, earlier in this week, I stopped at the mall, and I'm just, I just took a little time to watch people's faces. The time that should be happy, right? You're shopping for people that you love, I think, right? But it was depressing almost, like no one was happy. And I was intentionally trying to smile and greet people as I was walking through Dillard's, and it's like nobody even wanted to acknowledge me. It's probably because I'm ugly, but that's another, that's, that's a different topic there. But the people are joyless, right? They're joyless. And, and we began this series talking about why the world is weary, and we're using that line from the uh, the famous Christmas hymn, Oh Holy Night, right? The thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. And we talked about why the world is weary and in a state of weariness, and that's because of sin. Sin is the cause of the weariness in our world. We saw that sin marred God's good creation, that a thick cloud of gloom enshrouds our world as a result of man's rebellion. And the curse of the fall meant that mankind would not enjoy the kind of life that God had intended for us to live. No, because of the fall, because of the curse in this world, life would become exceedingly difficult. We know that to be true experientially, but it's very true biblically. The world is not as God intended for it to be. It is difficult and wearisome. Sin, ruin, everything. Sin ruins everything. It's a weary world. Our relationships are strained. Our work is hard. We labor and toil and maybe don't produce what we think we ought to be producing. Emotionally, we're exhausted. Our physical strength and health fails us. And spiritually, we're lifeless. We're dead. That's the human condition. That's why the world is weary. And it is, in and of itself, when you think about it, a hopeless and helpless situation. And certainly, we could say that is the cause of the immense joylessness. The good news for us is that God doesn't leave us there, does he? He does not leave us in a hopeless and helpless state. We've been looking at how the birth of Christ means hope for the weary world. Last week we looked at how the coming of the Son of God in His incarnation demonstrates the immense love of God for a weary world. And today we will see how the Christmas story that we are all too familiar with means joy for the weary world. Well, we are in the second chapter of Luke and we read a portion of this in our uh, Advent 
liturgy, but I'm going to read from verses 8 through 20 in this account of our Lord's birth. Hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with, with, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. These are the words of the Lord. Now, from this beautiful narrative this morning, we're going to look at three things from this passage. The content of the angel's message the recipients of the angel's message, and the response to the angel's message. And from this, we're going to draw encouragement and see how the coming of Christ brings joy to a weary world. But first, the content of the angel's message. I love reading the narrative of the coming of Christ here and how matter-of-fact the story is. It's just stating it as it happens, right? It's not colorful language. It's not trying to draw some immense imagery here. It just tells us what's taking place, what's happening here. we got shepherds, and shepherds are doing shepherd things. And we know what time of day it is. It's, it's night. And we know what they were doing. They're tending to their flock, as good shepherds would do, protecting the flock from maybe wild animals that might want to pull some of them away and eat them. And devour them. And as they're doing their shepherd things, something really phenomenal happens. An angel of the Lord, we're told, appears to them. An angel of the Lord. Now, if you read Luke's account here of the birth of our Lord, you'll find that these uh, supernatural angelic visitations and all this angelic activity surrounds the birth of our Lord. In Luke's prophecy, we have three angelic visitations. We have one to Zechariah, John's father, when he was serving in the temple. We, of course, have the angelic visitor to Mary to announce to her that she would conceive and give birth to the Christ, the Savior. Uh, and then we have this account, the angels appearing, an angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds. Now, in Matthew's account, we have one angelic visit, and that's in a dream to Joseph to let him know what was happening, right, so he wouldn't be... You know, astounded at what was happening to his betrothed, Mary. 
who was a virgin and wondering, how is it that she's got a baby bump? Well, now he knows, and now he knows what he needs to do to protect them, and, and that's when they flee into Egypt after Christ the Christ is born. But here, an angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds. And you get a sense as you read about all of this angelic activity that the trajectory of everything in the world, everything that's been happening up to that point, all of human history, all of the world events are kind of pointing to this one moment in time. And out of nowhere, this angel appears to the shepherds. What's their emotional response? Worship? Praise? Happiness? No, they are scared. Yeah, they're fearful. They are terrified. And that seems to be the appropriate response. I think we all soil our underpants. We actually caught a glimpse of a real angel. I know there's a lot of people who talk all the time about seeing angels. Oh, an angel showed up to me. And they act like it's such a, you know, haphazard. That's ah, an angel. Every, every first contact with an angel in Scripture produced this exact response here. Fear and terror. For good reason. These are no mere mortals. Right? These are terrifying creatures. Right? Have you read how they're described in Scripture? Like we won't have time to go through that. Read Ezekiel. Read Daniel. Read Isaiah. Revelation. We have nothing, no context for what they look like other than the few times that God has allowed us mere mortals, mere humans, and opened our spiritual eyes to behold these wonderful and terrifying messengers of the Lord. Now, sometimes they have appeared in human form, and immediately someone didn't know that they were angels, but here it's unmistakable, right? This is an angel of the Lord. But there's a second facet of this angel's appearance that, to me, is so remarkable. It says that not only did this angel appear to the shepherds, but also that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Not around the angel, we assume that. The glory of the Lord also shone around the shepherds. Now in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord was the tangible, manifest presence of the thrice holy God. Remember the account in Mount Sinai, where the Lord is going to meet with his people, and he summons Moses. I want you to read later on Exodus 19 and 20. And kind of put yourself into the scene of what is taking place there, right? The Lord is to meet with Moses up on the mountain, and the people are supposed to draw near to the mountain. And what you find there is that the glory of the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai, upon this mountain. And it's accompanied by thunders and lightnings, and you go, okay, uh, we're in Florida. Like, we, we understand thunders and lightnings. I'm pretty sure this was something a little more intense than that, right? And it says that this thick cloud was on the mountain. And they, they heard this deafening trumpet blast coming from the midst of the mountain. And Moses was instructed by the Lord to have the people come near to the foot of the mountain. They weren't to touch the mountain. They weren't to go up to the mountain. But they were to draw near because God was going to meet with them. That's terrifying in and of itself, right? 
But that's what they were supposed to do. And this mountain, we're told, was wrapped in smoke. And here's why it was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the mountain was trembling and shaking. That's a terrifying picture. But it's a manifestation of the very presence of the living God in that moment. And what was the response of the people? They were terrified. Like the mountain wasn't the only thing shaking and trembling, right? They were as well. There were some soiled underpants there as well. No question about it. They were terrified. They were definitely afraid of approaching the mountain to hear from God. So what does the scripture tell us? It says that they backed off. Like they moved away and they said, Moses, you know what? You go up, right? Because the trumpet blast started to intensify. The Lord descends at the mountaintop and they hear a thunderous voice that summons Moses to the top of the mountain to meet with the living and holy God. And they go, no, no, you, you go. You go to speak to God on our behalf and we will listen to what you have to do. Now we know if they didn't listen, right? Maybe had they done what God had told them, it would have been a different thing. But they said, you go, you speak to God on our behalf. We'll listen to whatever God tells you to say. But we can't approach because if we do, we will die. Like they understood in that moment about the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord gripped them. In fact, Moses said, hey, this is why you're experiencing all of this. So that the Lord will put the fear of him in you and before you. We know that the glory of God is not something to be trifled with. We see it in the whole aspect of the tabernacle, where the glory of the Lord would descend in the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> As the Lord led them through the wilderness, how was that accompanied? But by the glory of the Lord, a, pillar of cl uh, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the visible, tangible manifestation of the glory of God, but not even the priests would dare touch the holy things. And they had to be appropriately prepared to even do their priestly duties. <clears throat> we have the uh, story of poor Uzzah in First Chronicle 13, if you recall. They're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, this, this holy Ark that contained the broken tablets that God had given Moses and the oxen cart stumbles and he's like, I'm going to help this thing. Out, make sure it doesn't fall and he touches it accidentally and what happens instantly dies it's the glory of the Lord I mean it's a serious thing but here we see the arrival of the angel accompanied by the glory of the Lord and it's shining around shepherds not priests who need to be needed to be ceremonially cleansed to even enter in and do their priestly duties, these were filthy, smelly shepherds. That's fascinating. I'll come back to that in a moment. So the angel appears. They're terrified. It's the last thing that they were expecting that night as they were going about their duties. They were probably sitting around a campfire. Never shepherded sheep. Spiritually, yes. I've smelled sheep. I've been around them a little bit. I don't know exactly what is involved in all this shepherding activity, but it's it's nice. They're probably around a campfire, and they're probably singing whatever songs shepherds sing. Mary had a little lamb. I don't know, something like that, you know? And this happens, right? This, this angelic light 
pierces the night. I mean, and they're, and they're scared. Now, they're relieved when the very first words out of this angel's mouth is, you're not. Don't be afraid. And he says, I bring good news of great joy. Now, that would be a relief, wouldn't it? Like, all right, at least it's not bad news, you know? Some angelic messengers, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Had bad news, right? Destruction was coming. But this was, this was good, <clears throat> good news. So what was this good news of great joy here? Well, the good news is that the promised Savior is born this day. That is good news. It would be joyful news to those who were waiting for this. We've talked about this waiting of the people of God. They were waiting for Messiah to come. And that's why we even observe and reflect during this time of Advent in this season. We reflect on Christ's incarnation, but we're also identifying with the people of God who had been waiting, who had been longing, who had been anticipating and expecting the fulfillment of God's promises to send a deliverer, a savior. We know they've been waiting a very long time. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. In fact, from Abraham and that promise to the coming of Christ was some 2,000 years. That is a long time to wait. We grow increasingly impatient day by day, right? For very little things. They've been waiting for thousands of years. When you're anticipating something for a very long time, and the moment finally comes, what is really the only appropriate emotion in that moment, but elation and joy, or it should be. I think about it, and I've seen you know the videos of military families who are waiting for their husbands, sons, daughters, spouses, right, to, to fathers to, to return from deployment, and when they see them, I mean, just the emotion of joy overwhelms them. Maybe you've waited on something for a long time. We have some friends who are pastors that they've, they've been trying to get into this house that they, that's been built for them for such a long time. And there's been setback after setback, but following their story, and now it's nearing the conclusion, and they're almost in there. You can in, in their writings and in their posts, you can see like joy is starting to fill their lives. Like, man, they've been waiting for this. And you're like, oh, that's something. But this is a family of ten. All right? It's a large family, lots of kids. <laughs> Wait for something and it finally comes. Maybe you have a loved one you haven't seen in such a long time, in so many years, and they're coming for a visit and you can't wait in the moment that you see them. Like it's joy, happiness, and you probably move with emotions and tears. The people of God have been waiting for a long time. So this is good news, right? Good news of great joy, the angel says. And he right. Uh, a theologian, New Testament theologian, wrote, In the Jewish tradition, joy is something that happens when God finally does something that people have been waiting for. They've been waiting a long time. God was fulfilling His promise. They've been waiting for this. Now, we know there are times in the history of God's people where they thought that God had forgotten them. That God had forgotten His promises to them. In Isaiah's uh, prophecies in chapter 49, 14, uh, Isaiah writes, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord 
has forgotten me. Now at this point, right, they knew that God was punishing them for their sin and rebellion. And an invader was coming. Right? An oppressor was coming. And they were going to overrun the people of God and take them into captivity. The prophet of the Lord had been telling them and warning them and calling the people of God to repentance. And many of them are like, well, where is God? Why is he allowing this to happen? Has he forgotten us? Has he forgotten his covenant with us? But where are the people of God right now, Israel, at the time of these events in Luke chapter 2? Well, they're in their land. Contrary to what many people in the world are saying right now, like, oh, Israel are the occupiers. No, this is their land. I mean, we see it here 2,000 years ago. This is their land. They're in their land, but guess what? They don't rule themselves in this moment. Because of their rebellion, God has sent numerous uh, evil nations, right, to, to attack them, to, to punish them, to take them into captivity, and right now they find themselves under Roman rule. These are their captors. These are their oppressors. And while they enjoy a certain measure of liberty, right, even their worship of the Lord is restricted in many ways. That's where they are right now. And I'm sure many of them at that moment thought, where is God? Has he forgotten us? What about his promises? And many of them, though, were still hoping and, and waiting and longing for the coming of Messiah. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to what he's writing there. When the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? Well, it tells us a lot of things. We don't have time to go into all of this, but it means that Christ was born at the appropriate time, at the right time, according to to God's plan at the right moment. Because God is never late. God, in terms of what He has decreed and what He has promised to do, will always do and accomplish what He said He would do. What He promised He will fulfill. This was the moment of the fulfillment of that promise. God does not forget His promises. God does not forget His people. In that same chapter of Isaiah 49, the prophet goes on in verse 15 and 16. This is the Lord speaking to his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Listen to that, what he's saying there. Can a woman forget the baby she's just given birth to and is nursing? Like, that's inconceivable maybe to us. Like, that's crazy. But that, that could happen. Sadly, it does happen. But it, look what, what the Lord says. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's the tattoo God has on his hands of his people. He does not forget. And I feel somebody needs to hear that today. God has not forgotten you. You might feel because of your circumstances, your situation, maybe a trial that you're walking through and going through, that God is just extremely distant and far from you. Or maybe He's forgotten you in some way. God doesn't forget. God does not forget those who are His. You're near and dear to Him. 
so near as if you were written and engraved in the palm of his hands. That's a comfort for us. So God did not forget. He was preparing the right time to fulfill his promise all according to his divine calendar. There's a a whole host of reasons and details why the coming of Christ at that specific moment in history was the right time uh, for the gospel message to go forth and for the Messiah to come. But God did not forget. And Christ's birth announced by the angel was exactly what they had been waiting on for so long. Now, the angel tells the shepherds that the sign of his arrival is they're going to find a baby. Now, that's not surprising, because after all, he says that he's born this day. I mean, so it kind of assumed we're looking for a baby. He came as a baby, and they say you'll find this baby swaddled in a blanket. That's also not unusual. You would wrap a newborn in a blanket. They would be swaddled. I think of that blanket that's found in every maternity ward in every hospital in our country and it's a pink and blue blanket most of you were probably wrapped in that many decades ago and they're still wrapping little ones in those particular blankets so it's not unusual that a baby would be swaddled right Um, but there's a second aspect to the sign right you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths where lying in a manger, lying in a manger. That manger was likely the feeding trough of animals, a wooden feeding trough, right? That would indeed be surprising. Why? Well, this is the long-anticipated Messiah, Savior, Christ the Lord, the descendant of the great King David. Now, we know David's immediate descendant, right? Solomon had the most opulent, right, uh, house built for himself, and he built the great temple of the Lord, Solomon's temple. But here, this king was not born in a royal palace, as you would expect a king, a deliverer, a savior to be born in. No, he's born, and he's found lying in a manger. The Christ, the one who's the subject of the angelic proclamation, the one whose birth is good news of great joy for all people, has been born in the most unlikeliest of places. Not in a palace, surrounded by opulence and splendor and attended to by a royal court, something that would be worthy of a king. No, this great gift of God that would bring joy to the weary world was born in the humblest of places. Let's talk about the recipients of the angel's message. Think about the fascination people have when an announcement is made that a child has been born that is going to be in the line of succession to the monarchy. Now, we've rejected a king here in our country, but not so around the world. But we also get kind of get caught up in those things, right? Oh, so-and-so, you know, is pregnant, and their baby is going to be next in line to the throne, right? Like, that's, that's, big, that's a big deal. That's a big news, right? The paparazzi are right outside the hospital. They can't wait to, to snap photos of the newborn baby and... And, and be ready to be one of the first to report about whatever the name of this child is going to be, right? This, this could be the next king or queen, right? It's a big deal. We kind of laugh at that over here, but not really because we kind of get caught up in our nation too with celebrities, right? Movie stars, 
you know, music stars, right? Oh, they're going to have a baby, right? It's a big deal. It really isn't. But it happens, right? And, and this is what we think about with these things, right? It's to talk all over the country. But how about the birth of the King of Kings? How about the birth of the one who's long been anticipated? Nothing. You'd think it would draw enormous attention. You'd think that the news would spread far and wide that he was coming, but the way God orchestrated this is so phenomenal here. There's no media attention. There's no notable influencers present. Right? The birth of this king, by all accounts, was nothing special. Nothing special at all. The Christ, the Messiah, was born in obscurity, in the most unlikeliest of places. So maybe it's not so surprising now for us to read this, that the recipients of the angelic proclamation would be the unlikeliest of people to receive the revelation of good news, of great joy. Now in our world today, with social media and the vehicles of mass communication, if you wanted to get an important message out, how would you do that? Who would you take that message to? To blast it far and wide? As fast as possible. Who would you entrust with such an important message? Well, you would look at the person with the greatest following. The person with the greatest influence and reach. The one who when they say something or recommend something like everything happens. There's a reason advertisers pay some uh, social media influencers hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars to promote their things. Because when they talk about something, they can move the masses. Well, if you had an important message, that's who you take it to. In our world today, I don't know who that'd be. Maybe Taylor Swift. I hear she's the Times Person of the Year. Or Joe Rogan or Elon Musk. I guess it truly is a weary world, right? <laughs> like these are the ones, right? Not some great figures other than maybe some of the things that they do. But that's who you take an important message to, to broadcast it. Far and wide, so you think the announcement of the birth of the Savior would have been brought to the attention of the most influential people for the people of God at that time. That would be the religious rulers, the religious elite, the scribes or the Sadducees who were the ruling governors in Jewish society. But that's not whom God chose to deliver the most important news of all. Right? He chose to deliver the good news first to the ears of these small town, backwoods, country, Judean shepherds. The most unlikely group of people to which this pronouncement, such as the birth of the Savior, could be made. Now why is that? Why is that? Let's consider the shepherds. Shepherding was considered to be one of the lowliest professions anyone could engage in was largely occupied by uneducated and unskilled workers. They had no social clout, which is kind of weird to bring this important message to someone like them. In fact, they had such a bad reputation that they were not even considered trustworthy people. Okay? They could not even be called to testify in a trial because their testimony was not valid. Couldn't be trusted at all. Okay? Because of the nature of their work, they were ceremonially unclean. Certainly they would not be of the tribe of Levi. 
who were those who did the priestly duty. But because of what they did, touching and working with animals, they were considered unclean. They were on the bottom rung of the social ladder. In fact, they were in the same category of these other despised groups, like tax collectors. And those who would sweep dung off the dusty streets. Shepherds bore the official label of sinners. Now you think, well, aren't we all sinners? Well, the Jewish leaders had a special category of people they called sinners. Right? So it was a technical term. And they would be the especially despised people. They were outside of the mainstream. Right? Uh, they were considered to be people who had coarse, used coarse language and had bad habits and, of course, smelled like animals they cared for. So they were social outcasts. The least special people of all were shepherds. Like they would never be invited to appear before the king. That's who these shepherds were. So why would God entrust this message to shepherds? Here's four reasons I'm going to give you. I think there are more. But here's four important ones. First is that the Christ, the Messiah, was a descendant of David. Now that's made clear again, you know, in the angelic proclamation itself. This day is born in the city of David. Everyone waiting for the Messiah knew where he would be born, Bethlehem, and of whose line he would be, of the great king David. He was a descendant of David. What do we know about David prior to his calling to be king? He was what? He was a shepherd. He was tending his father's flock. This again is a reminder of who the Christ was. He was of the line of David. Second, one of the symbols of how God relates to his people is that of a shepherd to his flock. This shepherd sheep motif is found throughout all of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. We have one of the most beloved Psalms, right? Psalm 23. It talks about God's shepherding care of his people, how he cares for, feeds, protects, and leads uh, his sheep, his flock. Uh, we have Ezekiel's prophecy of how God would seek his people out as a shepherd seeks out his own flock when they have been scattered. Look at Ezekiel 34. We're going to read two portions of that. Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16, and 23 and 24. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, and I will set up over them one shepherd. Who is it? My servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He is the shepherd over his people. Third, in this we have a foreshadowing of Jesus, who himself declared to be the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, he declares that he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for his sheep. In John 10, he says that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And then he writes in John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be, listen to this, one flock 
one shepherd. Jesus himself was declaring he is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. He is the one shepherd who will gather all of God's people into one flock under the one shepherd. And fourth, I think another reason is why this important message was first given to shepherds is that these are the very people that Jesus came to save. We get a glimpse, uh, in in these being the first recipients of the angelic message, a glimpse into Jesus' own mission in this. These shepherds, unlikely, unloved, uncared for, despised, rejected sinners, are exactly who Jesus came to save. When Jesus was eating with another group of sinners, the tax collectors, right? You have one of the religious leaders, right? One of the Pharisees just complains to one of Jesus' disciples. Who does he think he is? Sitting and eating with sinners. Doesn't he know who who he's around? And Jesus hears this, right? What does he say in Mark chapter 2? Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's his mission. That's his mission. So why is this baby born on that night, the Christ good news of great joy to the weary world? Well, because he came to save sinners, like these shepherds. He came to save sinners just like you, just like me. This is why I find it, as I said earlier, so remarkable that the glory of the Lord shines around them at the appearance of the angel. What does that speak? That through the birth of of the Christ, this child, this baby, those who are despised, rejected, outcast, broken, unclean, spiritually bankrupt, the lowliest of the low, who can never in a million years be able to pass through the veil and access the glory of God, now through the work of Messiah, through the coming of this child, they have access to the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? This is what Jesus came to fulfill and to do. We read this in Paul's letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look how he describes who we are. 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You get that? You are nothing special. Even if your mama told you you're the most special, amazing thing, there's no one like you in the world, they have a right to say that to you. From this perspective of who can be saved, none of us deserve it. There is nothing in us that makes us saveable. But who God chose, that's, that's our category. If you're saved, that's what you are. Foolish, Weak and despised. Notice that is from the world's vantage point. The world makes other selections. The world has other qualifications. 
You might, if you're an overly religious person, in your self-righteousness, think that there is something in you savable. But, but that's not what we find in Scripture here. See, Jesus is not good news of great joy if you're someone who doesn't think you need rescue because you're a good person. Jesus is not good news of great joy if you think that you deserve the grace of God. Jesus is not good news of great joy if you think that you're not what God says you are apart from Him. A sinner spiritually dead and hell-bound apart from Christ. If you think those things, then really the coming of the Christ is not really good news of great joy. But if you know that you are spiritually weak, low and despised in the world, an outcast, a sinner in desperate need of rescue, then you and I are in the company of these shepherds who receive the good news. Jesus, the good shepherd, is your Savior. And guess what? You're part of his flock. Now, the shepherds aren't the only recipients of the good news. There are others that we find in Scripture that are the recipients of this good news after the shepherds. Of course, we have the Jewish people themselves, right? The Jews to whom Jesus first came to. They received the testimony of the good news through Jesus himself and, of course, through his disciples. These were God's very special people. They were the recipients of the promises that God had made to Abraham and Moses and David. But sadly, they were not faithful to God. They were a rebellious people, as we talked about, and God punished them. Here they are living in their land, but not under their own rule. They were outcasts themselves, but they didn't see themselves that way. They did not recognize their spiritual poverty. And that's why Jesus, and he comes talking, right, and we call the Beatitudes, right, in Matthew chapter 5. The blessed are. You know, and he's saying, here's, here's the ones who have access to the mercy of God. Here are the ones who actually can be saved. It's those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. That they do have a great need. Now they would have considered these shepherds to be people who had great need. They were marginalized, outcast, despised, and rejected. Those were the sinners. But they failed to recognize that in themselves. Especially the religious leaders. Ephesians chapter 2, 12. Paul talks about another category of people who were recipients of the good news after the Jewish people rejected it, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The rest of the unwashed filthy masses, right? That's all of us, right? It's the rest of the world. But this is how Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Again, for the Jewish people, they had received the promises. They were under the covenant. They had forgotten that it wasn't just about them. They were supposed to be a light to the world. right? It wasn't supposed to end with them, but it began with them. They had long forgotten that. It was also for the rest of the world. But Paul says, here's what you were apart from Christ, before coming to faith in Christ, before you experienced the new birth in Jesus Christ. You were strangers to those covenants. You were outside of it. You were far off. You were hopeless. You were in great need. That is exactly who the Savior came for. So again, after the Jews rejected the gospel, the rest of the, the Gentile world got to hear it. 
These are the recipients of the message. And of course, we're recipients of that message today. But I'll ask you, how do you see yourself? Is the gospel good news of great joy for you? Do you see yourself apart from Christ as being spiritually bankrupt and in great need? Because the truth is, you and I are in no less in need as were these despised and outcast shepherds at the time of Christ. And no less needy than any in the Gentile world on the day that Christ was born. The whole world stands condemned. The whole world is found in need because of the, the ruin that sin has brought. Every single human being born into this world, save the Messiah. We are in great need. Do you recognize that need? Lastly, let's look at the response to the angel's message. How are we to respond to this angelic proclamation of joy to the weary world through the birth of the Christ? Well, what do we find here in this story? After this one angel delivers this great news, this divine message... And these shepherds are left with trying to wrap their brains around what just has been told to them and what they had just seen. We have another in-breaking moment here. All of a sudden, right, all of heaven breaks loose. I can't even begin to imagine what that light show had to look like at that moment, right? Their spiritual eyes are opened in, in a moment. And a multitude of angels are suddenly unveiled to them. This great celestial, glorious rock concert, man, take taking place in this moment. I don't know what that's got to be like. We'll go find out one day, right? Loud, deafening, thundering bass, you know, perfect harmonies, all of this stuff, right? What are they doing? Worshiping God. They're glorifying God. They're praising God. God, at the announcement of the birth of the Christ, the Messiah, heaven is rejoicing. This is phenomenal. Now we know what do angels do. Angels praise God. Why wouldn't they be? But they're praising God for a very specific thing right here. They're praising God for the birth of the Savior who will bring peace. We're going to talk about peace next week. Imagine with me for a moment. These immortal Terrifying beings who have had front row seats from the time of creation till that very moment. Right? They've been watching the entire plan of redemption unfold through each successive generation, through every single world event, every nation rising and falling and seeing the preservation of the people of God through all of that and all of the announcements of the Messiah coming. They have been witnesses to all of that. They have seen it. They have marveled at it. And in this moment, what is it? The second person of the triune Godhead whom they've worshipped before, day and night, in the unrestrained glory and presence of God, has now been enfleshed and come into this world to bring salvation. And they are just freaking out. And worshipping and glorifying God. Marveling at the, the, the immense mercy and love and grace of God for a rebellious and sinful people. And even Peter says in his letter in 1 Peter that angels, they long to look at this because they probably can't even begin to understand it. This is the holy God. 
the glorious God. I promise you, there's no angel who acts in a flippant manner in the presence of God. None. And to see what's taking place in this moment, that moment is here. And they've been privy to this, not fully maybe getting it or understanding, but they've been privy to this throughout the entire span of human history, watching this. And it's here. And they're worshiping. They're rejoicing. They're praising God. Now, as quickly as they appear, that concert's over. The shepherd's like, what was that? And they're left in the darkness. Again, in the quiet of the desert. But what's their response? Wow. Let's reason this out for a moment. Was that... Were we just smoking something? Or or, or was it the smoke of the campfire got in our eyes and we kind of just saw something? Did they doubt the message or the messenger? No, man, we're told what happens here. They're like, hey, boys, let's go see this thing that we've just been told about. Let's go. No hesitation, no doubt, no uncertainty, no trying to reason it out. You you read earlier on in Luke's gospel here the story of Zechariah and his angelic visit, and he doubted. (laughs) And what happened to him? became mute. He had to wait until after the birth of John. Now, I know some of you spouses would pray that that would happen to your husband, and that he'd be mute for a while. Well, it happened for Elizabeth, but don't pray that. But these, these guys, they don't doubt. They don't hesitate, right? They believe the message immediately, and they go. Think about it. I don't know how far they were. Maybe they were just a few miles away. I don't really know the distance, but they were in the region. And maybe the angel didn't tell them the exact address, right? So maybe they had to go door to door. But they knew the sign to look for, didn't they? But you probably wouldn't find a baby. That's not weird, but you'd find it weird for a baby lying in a feeding trough where the cows and the chickens and the other things eat out, the goats and the sheep. So they go door to door until they find what they're looking for. And they find things exactly as the angel said they would. And they tell everybody. They tell everybody the joyful news that the angel had revealed to them. We find even Mary marveling and treasuring in her own heart what's said. Now, she had already gotten her own angelic visit, so that really wasn't new for her. She's like, oh, cool, you guys too? Is it the same angel, Golden Sash? You know? <laughs> Whatever. They go. They pro- they're the first to proclaim the gospel. At least that's how I read it. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Savior. And their response is the same as that of the angelic host. After they go, after they see, after they give the good news and proclaim the gospel as was told to them by the angel, they return, what? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They praised God that they got to be some of the very first people to lay eyes on the Messiah, the Savior. Now these shepherds are forever memorialized as those who are part of this historic prophetic 
moment that we celebrate at Christmas. Uh, they're also, they also get their own little figurines in our nativity scenes as well. Others don't. Now, we don't know their names, do we? Not told. We know who the other angels visited, but we don't get the names of these, these guys here at all. It's not really relevant. It's not important, right? They return to Tennessee, and we never hear of them again. Right? They disappear from the pages of Scripture. But they've got a great story to tell their kids and grandkids, don't they? But we don't forget. Like This story is here for our exhortation and encouragement. The amazing part on that Christmas night that they had and their response to the good news of great joy. Because how are we supposed to respond to this great good news of great joy some 2,000 years later? Not having had an angelic visit of my own, nor you probably for that matter. If you have, I'd like to hear about it. See if it's legit. How, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We're supposed to respond just like they did. Believing, and worshiping and praising and glorifying God for the Savior. And then telling everybody about Him. That's our response. This story should also make us aware of our great spiritual need of salvation and how the birth of Christ means joy for the weary world. This is what our world needs to hear, brothers and sisters. Which is why there never should be such a thing as a joyless Christian. It should not be. Because Jesus is joy. Why? Because of the salvation he's brought us. An end to the weariness. A new birth. A new life. It reminds us that apart from Christ in this story, we can never know true and lasting joy. For apart from that gift, you and I would remain in our hopeless and lost state. story here is one also that reminds us of the foreshadowing that's found in the manger scene of Christ's death and how he would die to secure our salvation. Jesus at his birth was wrapped in swaddling cloths. But Jesus at his death would be wrapped in burial cloths. There's a picture being drawn for us here. I can imagine Mary at his birth, holding the baby. And at his death, Mary would be holding him again as he laid lifeless in her arms. And this baby was laid in a wooden feeding trough at his birth. And at his death would be laid in a grave, in a burial tomb, all to secure your salvation and mine. We cannot forget what the Christmas story is about. That this baby was born to die. And this is why it is good news of great joy. This was no ordinary baby. This is the deliverer. This is the Savior. The one who bring hope and love. And joy and peace. To this weary world. God gave us exactly the gift that we needed. We sing the great Christmas hymn. Joy to the world. The Lord has let earth receive a king. You and I have a responsibility to let the world know who the king is. He is the king of kings, and he brings joy to this weary world. 
So don't get caught up in the joylessness of the times, of the season, right? Because we have cause for great joy. We observe Advent here so that we don't become indifferent to the Christmas story, which is why we rehearse it over this time, over and over again, reflecting on it. And our response, the only right response for wretched sinners like us, is to fall on our knees in praise and worship to God, who sent His Son to be our Savior.